I assume that everybody has played D&D, right? You can come in if you want. Riding a bike. Right. Um, so, uh, I was going to speak here. Okay. I assume pro- probably for about 80% of all people who played tabletop RPGs, D&D was the first one they played. If that's true of you, raise your hand. Everybody? Okay. Yeah, okay. Um... So, uh, and I'll try to go start with like a, a brief history, um, and I'm sure some of you experts can correct my mistakes. Uh, so as far as I know, uh, publication and first sale of D&D was January of 1974. Uh, and it, originally it was uh, sold strictly as a, through a mail order service, basically. Um, and so they sent out the first product in January. Um, and it sort of gradually exploded and expanded since then. Um, so you have your ori- what we call original D&D. The, uh, originally were like three brown paper books and I think the second printing was three white paper books. And I'll actually go back a little farther than that. I'm talking about the D&D. Well, and, yeah, the D&D out of the, the, uh, the, magic, the magic and chain making. Well, I know, I know, but I meant D&D as D&D. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was the three brown and then later on it was three whites. Right, three brown, three whites. And I, I guess the, the brown covers didn't last very long, or they clearly switched to whites, as far as I can uh, I don't know. I still have my brown cover. Oh, really? So, yeah. Okay. Well, it's probably publishing switch or something? Uh, printed, probably a printing thing. Printing thing. Yeah. 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 They, were, um, they were all in box sets, so yeah. it wasn't like it was that hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so, the art was never real fancy. So, that, so that's your, your what we'll call original D&D. Um, and then I guess in 77, I think... Aspis wanted to donate the fun and exciting Gore Prize. <laughs> All right. It's uh, Gord the Road by Gary Gijak, City of Hawks. And that's not the first of the Gord books. I don't know which one this is, to be honest. But it was written by Gijak. Um, so anyway, I think it was in 77 or 78 that the first Advanced Dungeons and Dragons book was published. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Right. Um, and at that point, you sort of had really, you can say, two different games. Because you, you had the, the, the original game that was still being published in certain forms. And then you had Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And they existed, coexisted for a number of years until you had, I don't remember the year, it might have been like... 88, when you had Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 2nd Edition published. Um, and I think, for you historians out there, you can correct me, the, the 
what, what I'll call basic D&D, sort of petered out around that time. Uh, that's about when I dropped out of it, yeah. Right. And then, so, uh, that's kind of like what was going on through the 90s. Uh, oh, just when, they, when they launched D&D, the modern version, um, it had been the red box setting, the blue box setting, and when they relaunched it, the, um, I think they did a relaunch of the red box too, and that's how a lot of people got into it. That was just basic. It was the red right. box, and that would have been the early exactly. right. That's right. Um, and they actually and right, it petered out in the nineties. They actually did another relaunch of it just a couple of years ago, but I'm getting ahead of us. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, wait, you mean re- well, yeah, that's the yeah. <laughs> okay, so then in two thousand you have D and D third edition, and then two thousand three you have three point five because three point zero was born. Well, okay. And then, uh, see, what was the year for 4th edition? 2009. Okay, 2009 was 4th edition. That was the first D&D book I ever bought. Okay, and then this summer, like... like uh, at Gen Con. In a couple, at Gen Con? Yeah, yeah at Gen Con. August 19th, I think. So they're calling it D&D Next. Most people call it D&D 5th edition. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, do they cue up a 60s pop song? I don't know what they're going to do. Um, we'll have to be there to find out. But that's sort of like the various editions that have existed. I, mean, I guess the, to me the interesting thing is that you know during the 80s you had really two different games. Um, well, I mean, obviously similar, but substantially different that were coexisting at the same time. Um, with, with some really wonky stuff left over from the original, like, okay, humans can choose a couple different classes, but an elf is just an elf, and a dwarf is just a dwarf. The dwarf was a class in the original yeah, game. Yeah. 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 So it didn't really have the concept of race and class, as it were. Um, so that's kind of the overview of what's happened. Um, so how about if, uh, if you really want to know about the early history of Dungeons & Dragons, I highly recommend this book, which you can get on a Kindle. It's much less heavy. Uh, this is 620 pages without including the appendices um, of the actual history of wargaming and um, role-playing. It uh, goes from the 14th century all the way up to the... the you know, Basically, the introduction of the advanced Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the history of TSR, history of Gygax, how the game is designed, what its historical basis is, what its literary basis is, and why uh, Gygax could say this wasn't based on Tolkien, even though Tolkien was in it. So, anyways, it's well, it's well, well worth the read. But we're talking this is a scholarly, small print, big pages. I'm just saying, it's taken me. Close to six months to read it. So, uh, but if you want to know, that's the one to get. It's called "Playing at the World" by John Peterson, and I highly recommend it. And Ken, it's his book. Would you like your book back? What? <laughs> sure. He lent it to me. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Yeah, but as this gentleman pointed out, uh, prior to D and D, the chainmail rules uh, for miniatures, military yeah. miniatures gaming. Uh, included magical type stuff, right? right? Which was the first time somebody had done that, and it got a great deal of bad press by the purists who were trying very hard to make all their miniatures combat realistic with realistic effects. And someone says, "And there's a fireball." Well, what are you going to do with that, right? Right. Yeah. So that, that's kind of where it got started before the uh, January '74 publication of uh, original media. Um, so perhaps um, we'll have our panelists, uh, we'll start on the left, I guess, and just give us sort of like the story of your first d and uh, Well, I was in college, uh, 1980, so it was Advanced D&D Version 1, 
Um, I bought the player's guide from a hobby shop, which is probably the one because I sold it. And uh, I was brought in by a, a couple of friends that were twin brothers. And we would go to this um, guy in his wife's trailer and play like every Saturday until like 3 a.m. or whenever. Wow. And uh, it was very interesting. We would spend a lot of time in school and talk about what we were going to do, you know, for this next thing that we had coming up. You know, I was, you know, being lured by a succubus. What are you guys going to do? And we would do all this planning. We spent so much time talking about it. It was just incredible how you, like, make friends and you can just strategize and have just a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I played in various groups over the years. I had one group where we played during lunch at work, um, several house groups, 3-5. Um, I played a lot of 3-5 in the last 10 years. Um, I've played a little bit of 4. It's, it's okay. Um, but um, I think the, the current game that I'm playing is Pathfinder. I kind of like Pathfinder. It's 3-5, it's, it's but it's simpler. Right, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there anybody here who doesn't know about Pathfinder? Okay, yeah. No, I don't. It's basically the company that sort of like extended from 3.5. When, when, when uh, WotC published 4th edition, they said, okay, we want to still do 3.5, but we're going to improve it. So Paizo... They formed it out. Yeah. So Paizo is the company that formed, and uh, they called it Pathfinder. And technically it is a different game, technically it's not D&D, but it's very, very similar. If you want D&D and you play Pathfinder, you will get your fix. Thank you. Is that... Okay, Adam? Um, well, my first special role playing was actually Gamma World. Oh, Gamma World. Gamma World's... You're off Modern, now. I'm off now. <laughs> Sorry, it was TSR. Um, it was a post-apocalyptic. Very, I was been around the time of the World Wars. To me, this uh, oh, yeah. this whole post-apocalyptic thing was fascinating. But they didn't have the mutants. No mutants. No mutants. We don't call the mutants. We say magical. Oh, okay. Like, like the universe now. Um, it, it was mutants, and it was a, a DM in, in the middle school. And like you said, it's great. It's great. It's great for making friendships because you're working together. You play this game, um, you get to know each other. Um, it, it was really just very cool. And then someone who was part of that group introduced me to D&D. led me through my first module. I was at his house one time playing. And we went through it, and it was just the coolest experience ever with, um, I, I can't remember specifics, you know, but, you know, mazes, monsters, giant mushrooms, things like that. I thought it was the coolest yeah. experience. And then I'm like, well, you know, how did you come up with it? Well, this is the module itself. You introduced me to the concept of the modules. Right. It was uh, exploration into the unknown. And then I read it, and it was like, there's nothing in it. And you find out that's the one where you have to, like, populate yes. it with your own monsters. Yeah. So my first campaign, would never, I would never be able to read about it or create it again because it was something that came out of his imagination in yeah. a preformed dungeon that had been created. But I played mostly first edition in that time, some second edition. Um, and, and I did start getting into other role-playing games, including um, some, some of the science fiction ones. Doctor Who went faster, at least theirs. Um, was, it, it was old, but it was, a great, um, it was a great way to take something you love, such as that series, and bring it to life in your own way. And I, I just remember spending hours making my own um, modules, making my own uh, uh, monsters, my, my own version of the Monster Manual, which probably sucked a little bit like it right now. Maybe not as much as Monster Manual 2, but um, yeah. anyway. And then um, much later when I started teaching, um, uh, I started running campaigns as part of a sci-fi sci club we ran, and I'll let Carter continue that story. So. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, so for me, uh, let's see, autumn of 1979, freshman in high school, uh, I took a French class that first quarter, and uh, a guy behind me had a copy of this book that had this big demon thing on it, um, and looked kind of interesting. Prior to that, of course, I had, uh, uh, growing up, my mom had read The Hobbit to me when I was like a little kid, and I'd read that, and uh, I collected the Conan comic books. So I was into the fantasy genre before that. But seeing this book, I was fascinated by it. So I you know, turned around and asked him about it. He said, oh, this is this game, blah, 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 here's what it is. And so I guess that was the, the DMG, which actually has like an Efreet on the front cover back then, right? Yeah, so that's what it was. And um, on the DM, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so um, uh, I never actually, uh, I, I, many years later, I did play with that guy, but I, not right away. So I had to find somebody. Uh, to, uh, I basically had to search for Deep Dungeons and Dragons to find out something about it. And somehow, I don't remember, I found out there was a game at some hobby store uh, not too far from where I lived. So I went there, and that was kind of like how I got involved. Um, and back then, uh, well, I guess around that time, I asked for the, um, the uh, D&D basic set, the old Holmes Blue Book basic set, and I got that for Christmas and didn't really understand it. But, you know, I went to this hobby shop and played a little bit, and that's kind of how I got into it. Um, and then sort of some furtive efforts here and there with, of not really knowing how to play the game with neighborhood kids and not really working out and eventually figuring it out, though. Well, my first DM is actually sitting on this panel, so I have, I have to say that my first time was awesome. Um, but it was actually excellent. I, I was a sophomore in high school at the time. And we played the game just after class with Adam, who was one of our teachers. And he DM'd us through second edition. It was second edition. I, I actually, I will actually take it first edition when you guys threw it because I wasn't into oh, all the edition. stuff that Wizards of the Coast did. It might have been some second edition stuff, but okay. uh, yeah. Okay. I, I, I thought we had classes, so I'm sure. Um, it, it's been a. a it since we played that game, but it was a lot of fun. I actually still tell stories from that to a lot of my other gaming friends. Um, like the fire lizard that we befriended and named Roy and then had burned down the boat. And the, the storyline that we skipped because uh, I threw somebody off of a boat. We did a lot of things with boats, actually. Uh, but after that, uh, the next year, or, no, it must have been the year after, actually. Um, I bought... Well, in between then was my introduction to 3.5. With an old friend, I briefly got into the middle of a game that they were playing as a character that came in and then died. And, and then, right after that was when 4th edition came out, and I bought 4th edition books. Um, and so I may be the only person on this panel who actually likes 4th edition. <laughs> and... That was my first introduction to DMing because I just got a bunch of people at school. Basically, anyone I could convince to just like, hey, come hang out with me this Friday night. We're going to play D&D. And I lost a couple of friends doing that. But it's okay. They weren't important because they didn't play D&D. And so I DMed because I was the only one who ever played before. And I fell in love with making dungeons and things. Um, what is it about that? Is it something about the creative process? Creative process. Yeah, it yeah. is. I mean, I'm a game designer, so I don't know if I can speak for everyone or not, but 
I I fell in love with it absolutely, and I've continued to play. I played a lot of fourth edition for those for the first bit of my D and D, and then I played a lot of three five when I got to college because um, everyone around me was playing three five. So it's like I had the fourth edition books, everyone else had three five books. So I'm like, all right, I'll borrow your books and we'll play three five. Um, and I've also played a bunch of Pathfinder. I've now played more fourth edition recently because there have been a bunch of good modules that have come out for it. Um, I played a bunch of D&D Next because they have public beta tests uh, with just PDFs of it, and I still have the PDFs. I haven't played a lot of that because for some reason I can't get people to play it. Uh, but if you get the chance, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, and I have spent the rest of my time just getting my hands on every bit of uh, RPG I can play, and I've my friends and I have actually started making our own RPG systems because we can't get enough. <laughs> Alright, Bruce, what was your first D&D? Well, my first D&D, uh, 1976, I'm in college, I'm walking through the lounge at my college dorm, and there's these people sitting around a table with uh, line pads, and someone's got like a folded thing with mimeograph sheets of something uh, on, you know, uh, attached to it, and there's this map. And I walk up to them, and I ask them what it is, and they tell me that it's uh, this fantasy game that's got, you know, wizards and things like that. And I, and I um, am a, uh, a very devout Christian. And I looked at them, and they said, well, it sounds kind of cultish. And they looked at me, and they scoffed at me. And so I walked, turned around and walked away. Four years later, I am, uh, this is now 1980, and I am a, a, a manager at a pizza store. And one of the drivers comes in, and he's got a little bit of break time, and he pulls out this map of this maze, and he's working on it, and I ask him what it's about, and he tells me it's for this Dungeons & Dragons movie, which, by the way, I totally, if I was told the name of it before, I'd forgotten it. So I, and I said, so what is, you know, what is it that you do here? And he tells me about it, and it looked really... Um, uh, very questionable, very iffy as far as the game is concerned, because you've got like you know uh, you've got a dragon right next to Medusa, right next to us, something else. And I said, oh okay, you know that's that's interesting. And I paid no attention to that, except that I was involved um, with an organization out of Chicago called Cornerstone Publishing, and they produced a magazine called Cornerstone. And I got 50 of these things every month, and I distributed them all over campus because it was a, a religious um, newsletter about various topics of, of spiritual uh, thing. And they have a cover issue on Dungeons & Dragons. Well, I opened it up, I'm reading it, and I'm like, this doesn't sound anything like what I, this kid was showing me. It was this really, I mean, it, it's, uh, you've probably referred to it as screed, though I personally don't, don't think they were, you know, they were trying to be honest and fair, uh, though I think they were coming totally as an outsider into it. And so I said, well, okay, this is confusing. So I went out and bought the basic blue set to say, okay, you know, it's worth my six bucks to resolve this strange quandary. And I opened it up, I read it, I said, obviously, it is not, this is a game. It has nothing to do with, with cult behavior, it has nothing to do with Satanism, it has nothing to do with witchcraft. It's a game. And, and in, in reading about it, it admired my imagination. I thought it was great. I, I, uh, I, I ran a trial game at a Christian retreat with a couple some other Christians who had never heard of the game before. 
And after that, um, I found out about the Advanced Edition. And I was like, well, why am I playing this when I got the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> so I would actually never played with anybody other than that little trial thing before. I, I think I probably memorized that book. And then I found a science fiction club at Marshall University, and uh, and that and the rest continued. Uh, some uh, about a year or so later than that, I met Richard Taholka of TriPack Games, uh, who produced uh, a number of really noteworthy games, um, uh, especially Euro Thirteen, uh, originally called Stocky the Night Fantastic, which was the very first modern supernatural role playing game. Uh, he did Fringeworthy, which is the first interdimensional role-playing game, which has a striking resemblance to Stargate, even though it was published 10 years before Stargate ever aired on, on the TV screens and the movie screens. Uh, and I used Dungeons & Dragons, my campaign of Dungeons & Dragons that I had been running from basically 1980 on as a gateway drug, so to speak, to get people interested in role-playing games, and then I tried to move them then off to the uh, TriTac Games line of products. But I always did enjoy Dungeons & Dragons, and I always, I mean, I kept going back to it time and time again. So I certainly find value in it, and I think it's a great, great thing. And I would say that uh, um, it, it certainly marked my life in an exceedingly strong fashion. Cool. Okay, so out of the room, raise your hand if you've ever been a dungeon master. Okay, now rarely, but raise your hand if when you first dungeon master you were really crappy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. It's an acquired skill. Um, but you can devote an inordinate amount of time to it. Yeah, you're not careful. I went to three parties in four sessions. Well, I, 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 we can do that. Okay, who's ever TPK? <laughs> <laughs> very first session. Okay. That means total party kill. Yeah. No. Nope. You wipe out the entire party. So actually, uh, remember the. Uh, we did it for noble reasons. This one guy had trapped us in a room and said, "Give me fifty percent of the treasure, or I'll leave you here to die." And we said, "We'd rather die." New character. We were all first level. Did that much? They kill you and take the character. Take the treasure anyway. They couldn't kill us and take the treasure. That was the point. He had his trap. So they could take the treasure, which is what they really wanted, right? I remember. I remember one game uh, I was in. This was fairly recently. We, I was actually playing in this one. We all died in the first session, and this was for a module. And we we ended up rolling up new characters and doing the module again, and it was fine. But we died so horribly that first time that after we were done with this session, we all sat in stunned silence for a moment. <laughs> And then took our character sheets outside to the grill and burned them because <laughs> we were so upset. So you remember, remember the, uh, the giant series of modules from the late seventies, early eighties, like uh, Kill Giant, yeah, yeah. Frost Giant, yeah, Frost Giant. Giant. So I ran a party through that. This is not quite a TPK. Um, <laughs> they went through the Hill Giant one, not too much of a problem, and got demolished in the Frost Giant. Um, they never got to the Fire Giant one. Uh, there was like one character left, and like at the end of the module, there was like some lever where he pulls to get teleported uh, out of that, and that was like the end. We said, "Okay, well, this isn't working out." So I haven't quite TPK. Anybody else? No TPK, but um, I just remember a great campaign, a summer camp one time, and it was supposed to be ongoing, like you know, for a couple nights. And um, early in the first session, I just completely mind flayed. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, I was out pretty early on that. Yeah. Well, um, 
about the audience? What are your uh, questions or comments concerning D and D and how it's how you've used it or how it's uh, uh, affected you? Or just cool stories? Yeah, cool they were good times. I mean, it was we had um, one kid, and you know, we were all geeky. Let's face it. And so, um, but he was an engineering geek, and he enjoyed. He was a great DM, and all the drawing and the doing and everything. And um, we had probably usually between seven to eight party members with us. And um, but we would start Friday night, and it would go through Sunday afternoon. And of course, Friday night it was like, and we would sleep in shifts so that you could. But then it would be like, now you can't use this, you can't use this. If you do this, I will. You know, then it would be just like so. Then you knew that you were not. You know, it wasn't like you couldn't say, well, he's asleep, so he stupidly walks up and does. You know, right. so there was always the threats. And um, but um, and then so and so would be manager at. Long John Silver's, and he'd be showing up with food like at two in the morning when they closed. And oh, okay, well then you have the whole big, you know, right? And so they were. It was just it was great times. Well, that's pretty major. This was in '78, so this was, and then it was with the like DM guide. It was the original, and then it had the supplement pages because of all the typos in the book. Yeah. Well, I have to say that you said from Friday to Sunday. Yeah, and we go to Sunday, and we would be at you know, and we rotate it through three houses because you know, parents would eventually it was yeah, it was basically a, a mini convention that you were doing. Yeah, I mean, it, but that's just you committed to that. I know, we, yeah, I've never done that. Like in the old days, we used to do like maybe six-hour sessions, and that'd be about it. Oh, because we had enough people. We yeah. had enough people in the group that you could. Yeah. Sir, you were about to. Yeah. Well, I was saying I, I played in high school and haven't in a long time. And one of the reasons I came here is because my son's twelve now, and I was going to think about trying to get him back into it. And, and there's so much out there now. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, but one thing I was going to say was I actually, when I played, I had a copy of the the gods and demigods book. The one they had to take off the shelf because it had the Elric and the right. and and I sold it a couple years ago for like two hundred dollars. I mean, it was awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was great. So I had to find my stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I got boxes and all yeah. the player, all the figures. Yeah. I was big into painting the figures, and you know that certain pine needle that had that little hook that you could do the odd, small little dots. You dipped it. I mean, you got you know for that sure. Yeah, my days of my guys was in terrible shape, and I still got sixteen dollars for it yeah. at auction. But 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 now as far as back into it. I mean, it's got, you know, there's three point, I, I'm not even sure where you can still buy, but you can, you know, there's been 3.5 and 4 and 3 on the shelf all at the same time and the modules are right. key to different uh, editions and I, yeah. I wouldn't even know, I mean, I guess now with Next coming out, it'd probably be best just to wait and start fresh with Next to ground level, wouldn't it? Or? Well, I mean, it depends on what you like, though. If you like a certain edition, then by all means... So I, have, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not bound to anything, so it's been yeah. so long. Can, can you... Yeah, I, I just... I was just going to ask, how much have you guys seen it next, and what do you think of it? Uh, I haven't seen her tell us about so, it. Uh, well, I, like I said, I got the in on the playtest, so I have the, the PDF copies of the basic rules, um, which is by no means a complete thing. It has a one-page how-to-play thing instead of a DMG. Um, and some of the things aren't even complete. It's not a full rule set by any means, but it's pretty interesting. Um, it's more similar to three five than it is to anything else. Um, 
yeah. with the way the leveling works. But it's they made a lot of differences. Um, they took out what a lot of people know as the DM's best friend. Um, it's something that they had in three five and the fourth edition DMGs. It's a sidebar in both of them, and that mentions. If you think that conditions are good for the character, give them a plus two bonus on a roll. If they're bad, give them a minus two bonus on a roll. They've taken that away. Um, I mean, they haven't entirely taken it away. You can still do it, obviously. But what they've replaced the bonuses and penalties system with, for the most part, is a thing called advantage and disadvantage. If you have advantage on a roll, you roll 2d20s and you take the higher one. If you have disadvantage on a roll, you roll 2d20s and take the lower one. It's a really simple system that makes the a lot of the esoteric, well, why is this minus 2 and this is plus 3 and if I have... And, you know, if I'm balancing on a rope while trying to swing a sword, but I have the boots that make it better, but I'm falling on a hill that's a minus 3 and plus 2, and, and I end up with... It changes all of that to, ooh, well, advantage, disadvantage, advantage, so I have advantage, roll 2d20s. Um, and so it makes a lot of that stuff a lot easier. It does mean that there's less granularity. Uh, you know, it's harder to give somebody a plus one bonus, because advantage is obviously a much bigger bonus than getting just a plus one to a roll, which is a flat 5% increase. So it's a very small dice pool. It's still a small dice pool. Um, your granularity is hidden in the GM's mind. He's basically making a decision as to what that granularity is. Yeah, and so your DM does have to come up with a little bit more clever ways to give small bonuses, but big bonuses are and mini bonuses are handled much more easily in next. Um, also, feats are much more exciting now. You get far fewer of them, and they do, and they have really huge effects, which is a lot of fun. Uh, also, the way that they did multi-classing for spellcasters. Um, for those of you familiar with three five, if you're a spellcaster, you can't multi-class because then you start losing spells, and it's just terrible, and you will always fall behind no matter what you multi-class into. Well, in D and D next, they sort of do away with that. If you multi-class. The way you do your spells per day is that you get spell slots based on your total caster level. And your total caster level is calculated by one for every full caster class and one half for every half caster class you have. So if you have you know two levels of bard, that gives you one caster level, and four levels of mage, they did away with the wizard and sorcerer and combine them into mage. Um, I don't really know why they needed the change. I don't know why they couldn't just call it wizard, but hey, I don't, I'm not arsed about it. That would give that would be a level six character with a level five caster class, and you just consult a really simple table for that. And it makes that a lot nicer because you can actually multi-class. You can actually be a wizard cleric without losing all of your spells. But in uh, the highest level spells you are able to access is determined by your level of the individual class. So. It also caps your power out somewhat, but you can also cast spells at a higher level spell slot than they're worth, and some spells actually have a bonus for that, so you aren't totally lost on your high level spell slots. Okay. Alright, uh, but we were having a retrospective. So, any more questions yeah. about the past? 
Uh, well, I mean, we can certainly talk about any edition of D&D, or we, we can expand the topic down so to... Since starting, I already started. I was in the Navy. This was 1976. And I fell into a group of college students at, at the local college, and we were using a photocopy top set of the rules until some, one of us got enough money, me, to actually go out and buy them. And we got together and played on like Friday or Saturday night, says duty and studies and jobs would allow. And we had some interesting times. I, I played for through the 80s. And kind of, then I got married, moved to Atlanta, and moved away from our gaming group. So that's when I, when I stopped. But we also played other, you know, we morphed into other other games. We did uh, we played GDW's Traveler, and uh, said anything TSR made just about except for like Boot Hill. Right. We even we even got into Killer. Game Science is Killer. Okay. We were live. We were live role playing assassins. Okay, was that with metagaming or games? Uh, no, was it metagaming? Well, I, it was actually written by Steve Jackson. Yeah, I think it was metagaming at the time. Right. But we got into that, and somehow never managed to get into trouble. Yeah, yeah. But, oh. Yeah, booby trapping guys' cars. Yeah. Car bomb whistles and potatoes. A lot of people don't know how um, limited the market Arisio's perceived for Dungeons & Dragons. Back before Dungeons & Dragons came out, even the, the, the chainmail rules, okay, there were less than a thousand wargaming enthusiasts in the entire country. So Gygax, when they were producing the rules, they were hoping for a print run of 500. Okay, yes, and, yes. And, they, they, and they would have felt that that market was saturated at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were re-releasing new editions of previous rules that they had made. So when uh, when it took off, uh, Gygax, everybody was just totally floored. They had no idea that that was going to happen. And essentially what you had was a bunch of enthusiasts who really didn't know how to run a business other than a hobby business, suddenly being in control of something that was becoming a million-dollar concern. And these people were pretty much out to sea, and they made a lot of bad decisions as a result, which you know the, the, their audience, of course, immediately uh, wrote about it in their fanzines, uh, because that was the second way that disinformation got around, was through uh, a lot of the fanzines like especially uh, Alarms and Excursions and the Wild Hunt, which was sort of a fallback because things could, uh, Lee Gold, who was the editor of Alarms and Excursions, wasn't accepting all the articles that they were getting because they didn't want to make it too thick. So then all of a sudden we had more of these things spawning out to, uh, to do that. Before that, People had zines. They had apps. Okay, their their runs were maybe oh, you know, maybe fifty, hundred people. Not those. All of a sudden, now we're talking two, three, four thousand, five thousand print runs for a fanzine. It's like uh, Game Science went into went into their own thing. They they published a newspaper every month. I kept one for a long time just because of the headline. Would turn heads reading, say, at the airport. Or it was or have a headline said, The world, the world, the world, uh, uh, world emperor's legions loom large. That's a headline. 
Right. You're sitting there reading a newspaper with that kind of a headline, and people start, huh? <laughs> right. And every person who had a, a now, a, a, those of you who are not familiar with an app, a zine, every contributor has basically a small column, uh, a set of pages that they printed and are right. collected. Every single one of them thought that they knew how to run Dungeons and Dragons better than Gary Gygax. Of course. <laughs> okay. And they were, and, and they thought that everything that they wrote should be official. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> So when Gary Gygax came out and said, the only thing that's official is anything that's published in Strategy and Review, which was the TSR house organ, or actually in addition to Dungeons and Dragons, that's when the whole pushback, the whole thing about copyrights, everything else started. And speaking about how it's run, I was recently, uh, I think it was on RPG Net, uh, in the forums, there was there was some guy who had actually played with Gygax back in Gygax 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 back in the day. Actually, played with him back in the day. Said that the way he actually ran it originally was um, the players were sitting in one room and he was in an adjoining room, so they didn't ever actually visually see the, the GM the DM when they were playing. They would just hear his voice coming from this other room. And so I guess I don't know if that was supposed to be more immersive. Or something, but no, that's yeah. that's kind of like a, a double blind, a double blind with an umpire yeah. in board board game. We have the two opponents in one room, in separate rooms, with the same maps and the same counters and the, everything, and they run. Through, okay, you make your move. He makes all his moves. The umpire then goes over to the other guy and does the next segment, so that you don't see. What's going on until you would there's no eye of God in the sky right. telling you what's going on. Right. But, and, but apparently, when they were running, he wouldn't even go into their room yeah. as Dungeon Master. He would stay where they could just hear him. And so you know, that's how you play the game. Right. Originally, uh, a lot of effort was made to keep people from actually being able to concretely visualize the adventure they were going on, the dungeon. Uh, you could have a mapper, but they would. The GM would not say, "Well, this is a ten foot by ten foot room." He would say, "It's a small room that you know, and it's got a, it's got a quarter that connects it to another room, and that's a bigger room. It's got this in it, that in it." But he would. They would not use dimensions. They didn't want you to be able to map properly. They wanted you to be constantly in a state of wonder and terror about what might come out of some spot that they hadn't seen or such. And this was part of the very early game. Hiding information was considered part of the game, and 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 of course back then easily. Uh, well, they had graph paper, but people, you know, uh, a, a lot of people who were trying to get into the role playing aspect didn't want the, the break of having to run, draw a map, and and it took them out of the game. So a lot of times people played literally with just writing some clues down on a piece of paper as they went along, trying to figure out how to get out. And some people got lost. In those dungeons, as they were like two or three levels deep, people would be trapped for you know weeks of play sessions before they could finally find their way out. Right. And as the games evolved, I think that um, that I think that sort of play and other sorts of play really vary depending on your DM style. Yeah. Um, you know, some people some people are dungeon builders, and so a lot of those people really like. Uh, their players to get to see the dungeon. Mm-hmm. They like their players to get to map it out, and and they get to look down and see their players go, oh, look how clever our DM is. Um, 
And then some people are world builders, so they kind of like more of the mysterious stuff. And they'll let people get lost because there's something to be found. Because, you know, you've populated the world. You've populated every nook and cranny with some type of magical moss that will do something later on in the story. Um, and, and some people are story writers, and they have this grand architecture, this grand story to tell. Exactly, that they want their players to go on. So they don't want their... And a really big plot lost. Because... <laughs> it, no, so they don't want their, their players getting way. lost because, you know, that's going to take away from the story. It's like, oh, we don't need a lull in the story right now. I'm going to give you a way out. But then later on, they might have them get lost if they want them lost. Sure, and certainly lots of different styles have developed. And one, one thing that's kind of interesting that I learned doing a small amount of research is um, in the with Gygax and his group in the early days um, it didn't contain something that most game groups have now which is theatricality um, they didn't speak in character ever. Right. Right. Uh, it, it might describe what a character was doing whereas clearly years later there were players who said you know this is great but let's make it more into character what's the goal play Right. Well, if it's based on if they if they started like as war gamers, that would be how they do it. Exactly. exactly. The, the concept of actually having a character that you were speaking for in character that that was part of the whole um, evolution of role playing games. I mean, it didn't really exist before, right? That's true. I hope, I, I hope this isn't the bad word, but how does Eberron tie into Dungeons and Dragons? What is that? It's a setting. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a published setting. Uh, it was actually a fan-made setting that won a contest to become a fully published setting. And it is... The express purpose of Eberron is to be a noir-esque setting. It doesn't really... It's supposed to be noir-esque. Oh, noir. Yeah. Noir uh, it, it doesn't, in my opinion at least, it doesn't really fulfill that purpose, but it's a lot of fun. It's a great okay. setting. I, I've played in a number of those... Um, in a number of games, but uh, it's a great setting, and there are other settings. Forgotten Realms is another oh, big okay, popular okay. setting. Okay, yeah. It's a similar type thing. Eberron changes a lot more the with uh, the Warforged, who are a race of living constructs, like kind of like robot people, golems. Yeah, right. Yeah, if you play in, they're treated more you, like robots. You play in Eberron. Your whole campaign is in Eberron. Yeah. They don't really jump back and forth. No, jump yeah. back and forth. Yeah, it's well, you can jump back and forth, but it takes a very special campaign and a very talented DM to pull that off. Yeah, keep, keep in mind the, the fluidity of these games that you can go anywhere and do well, anything yeah. hypothetically. Yeah, uh, but that, actually, that's a good point. Let us we talk about the settings a little bit. Um, uh, so, and that's kind of complicated a little bit. Well, who, yeah, who created their own settings and who used the published ones? Uh, you know, about on my us. Yeah. Uh, well, I started using World of Greyhawk when I first started DMing, basically. Um, and which is, those of you familiar with it, it it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, it, it, and in many ways, nonsensical, but it's fun, you know, as a setting. Um, and then, I don't know if I've ever used it. For D&D itself, I don't think I've ever used a homemade setting. Well, that's not true. I have recently, but pretty much in the old days, it was World of Greyhawk. I have, I've actually always made my own settings right from the onset, um, but I've, more recently I pulled bits from the published settings, because the published settings are really good, and so pulling thing, pulling elements out of that, 
I mean, some of the published yeah. settings are really good. Some of them are kind of crap. But pulling elements out of that um, has kind of helped my settings be a little bit more evolved. Well, there was a, there's a company in the mid-70s whose name I have lost, uh, published their own universes and such. They didn't just do it for D&D, they did it for a lot of other RPGs at the time. I can't remember anything. Thinking of Judge's Guild? Judge's Guild, there you go. Yeah. Well, they, they were the very first TSR licensee. Yeah. So they got uh, they, they got the, the blessing that a lot of other companies instead got a letter of cease and desist from TSR. <laughs> were, were they the ones that did uh, City State of the, of the Invincible Overlord? Yes, they yes. were. Okay. Right, which is like another early setting. Right. Um, I always create, uh, I created my own setting from the very beginning, uh, especially because there were no published settings right. back then. Uh, and by the time the published <coughs> settings came out, uh, and I got one of the first copies of the, the, the Sea State of the Invisible Overlord, and I looked at it, and it was very nice, uh, but the best from the very I would have done was I would have planted it somewhere in my setting with my storyline, my kingdom structure, and everything else. And I've been basically using the same um, world setting for the past forty years. Uh, and the, now, as time went on, and, and my life changed, and I got married and had a child and had a lot of time restrictions, I started doing things like taking the uh, uh, the, the the campaign paths that were like being published in Dragon Magazine, and literally just playing, just using them, just playing them in my existing world, and then so in a sense, I was using another campaign in my campaign, but you know, I but I always fitted it in. Well, let's get to the same question with these two guys. Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with Greyhawk. I mean, I opened it. I know I read through it. I I, I like the concept of the different modules I had wanted to use in there, but kind of like Ted said, it was weird, different, it's not really something I, I, I liked. I really was more, most of it just sheer adventure, rather, you know, individual adventure rather than a, a setting. Um, and for that, and I loved the Dragon Magazine. I loved um, the, the modules, the, the, the way you could really hone in on something, I and mean, it really was kind of a precursor for all the later editions that came. So mine were really more individual adventures, but I did do a lot of design of my own. Um, modules rather than settings, and um, did run two or three. And the most fun part was just, you know, designing them and trying to top of the red, top of the red. So Steve, how have you used settings? If I want to use a world, I'll use, probably use Everon because it's the most complete and it's high quality. A lot of the, the DM mag or the dungeon magazine quality kind of went up and down, and it's kind of piecemeal, and a lot of times they don't fit together very well. Uh, Eberron did, um, and it's a huge time saver. Um, the thing I don't like about it is if your players get a hold of it, then they can get knowledge that they shouldn't have. <laughs> so it's you know there's pros and cons. Yeah, that's true. So uh, another aspect we could talk about is uh, okay. So Dungeons and Dragons, various versions. A lot of people play the game. Uh, how is this spread out in other ways? Uh, there was a Saturday morning cartoon in the 80s oh, yeah. called Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it, it was kind of... Which I gotta say, the coolest thing about it is when they, they did come out with the box set. They came out with a box that looked like the red box set for D&D. Uh, and actually came with a, a manual, uh, third edition style, with all the characters with um, stats and things really? like that. Yeah. Actually, I, I'm when, sure when, when was that? Uh, when did these come out? Probably 
07, 08. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. I'll show it to you. I'll look at it. But I mean, they're, they're fun. They're, I mean, I remember watching it at the time of one of my guys. I can't believe it is. It's like, uh, yeah, I, I had. But if you accept it on its own terms. Right. At one time, I had the first set of. Dungeon and Dragon action figures. This was before the cartoon. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, what were the action figures before the cartoon? They were just from the game. Oh. It was like a generic magic user. And like that, it wasn't a specific character. Gotcha. And then, so other than the cartoon, which a lot of you remember, um, so I'm not sure exactly when. I'm thinking this is maybe 89 or 88 or something like that. Um, Gygax wrote a book about this character, and so I, I don't know if TSR are publishing themselves or got worked with another publisher, but they started publishing books, uh, essentially based on D&D. Uh, and Gord, I thought it was called Gord the Thief, originally. It may have been Gord the Road. Um, so they kind of expanded that way. Um, and then much later, there was actually a D&D movie, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. <laughs> uh, and then there was, yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, was then, Tom Baker in it? Was he in it? No, 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 no. I think the Dragonlance one was first. Okay. Then the one that you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. There was a Dragonlance movie? The Dragonlance, yes, the Dragonlance movie. I don't even know. It was, it was, it was an animated feature. Oh, animated. I think, animated. I think, yeah, okay. I, I, I didn't know if that was before or after the D&D movie, but you're right, there was an animated yeah. And recently, though, there, there's a, uh, I think this is a British production, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, what is it called? The book. Um, the Book of Vile Darkness. Dungeons and Dragons, The Book of Vile Darkness. Now, I'm pretty sure it's a British production, but those are movies that are essentially based on D&D. The first, the first quote unquote D based novel that came out was a book called Quiet Key. Oh yeah, I forget about Lord. that. Yeah. Every, all the main characters had a bracelet which had a little, the die on, dice on it that would spin whenever they came up to, to a prop to a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. By Andre Andre Norton. Yes. Um, I had that I had that uh, some years ago and it's it's hard to read or it was hard to read for me. I, I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> I still got one. I still have my copy. But then I, I totally forgot about that. Never did the sequel. I mean, oh, there's no. also, first, the, uh, since, since we brought up the books, the R.A. Salvatore books, since he wrote a ton of them. And they were, they were actually pretty influential, because there's some, there was some rules text that came along after them. Really? It was actually, yeah. Uh, a lot of the, particularly a lot of the stuff when they uh, brought back Forgotten Realms in 4th edition. Uh, everybody knows what he's talking about? It's, can somebody pronounce the name? Okay. Yeah, I always just say Dritz. Right. We can just call him D-Man here. Right. So, um, that was, am I right that was supposed to be in the Forgotten Realms? Yes. That is in Forgotten Realms. Uh, The books actually have Forgotten, the Forgotten Realms logo printed on them. But clearly that was very popular, and um, apparently the the angsty dark elf with two scimitars is a a big thing. Oh my goodness. How about the choose your own adventure books? Ah, I forgot about those. She's your own adventure. I love those when I was a child. Yeah. I I had one. I actually had Don't one as a kid. Cheat and then get to a place and then do yeah. all the different. <laughs> I actually see what would happen. I had one of the yeah. D&D ones as a kid, and I didn't know until like two years ago. I I went back in my old room in my parents' house and found it on a bookshelf and looked at it and realized it was a D&D book. It was one of the D and D choose your own adventure books because yeah. um, I had no idea as a kid. I had never heard of D and D. Oh, actually, I just realized I kind of lied earlier. 
Uh, my first experience with D&D was actually not uh, when we played. My first experience with D&D uh, was not with the game itself. I, it was in a game shop. Um, it, it, it was in a game shop. Um, and I was, I, I was in elementary school at the time. A very small child. I was looking through stuff, and I saw a D&D book, and I had never heard of any of the stuff. No idea what it was. And the guy behind the counter uh, warned my mother not to let me get that book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because, uh, according to him, he had seen too many people lose too much time to that game or something like that. Well, get it. That's a legitimate complaint. And that yeah, is a, that is a, a legitimate concern. Seems like she lost that battle card. Right. <laughs> but uh, speaking of everybody's evil mouth. Speaking of D&D, everybody knows about the satanic panics of the 80s and all that. Oh, <laughs> we yes. know that D&D was, is a, was a big target, amongst uh, many other things, of course. Um, and you know about an uh, organization called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, BAD, <laughs> all that kind of thing. Nobody's unfamiliar with this, right? Yeah. Ran into, I, ran yeah. I actually ran into protesters at the local game store. At protesters at a game store? Yeah. Uh, oh. that, that I've never seen. My the local Baptist church. Well, around the time when I was first getting involved, I was in a hobby shop and. Um, there was, uh, uh, in, in one of the glass counters, there was one of the white books, uh, Eldritch Sorcery, or no, Eldritch... Eldritch Wizardry. Wizardry, which shows, which shows like a half-naked woman about to be sacrificed on an altar, Yeah, basically. And so these ladies right next to me uh, said something like, oh, don't tell me that's not witchcraft. And so clearly they, they had bought into it based yeah, on... Yeah, we, we, had, we had picketers. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there what, were also, what was funny was the same group... Uh, just as a side note, it didn't have anything to do with D and D, but other than the common common group, uh, when Monty Python's Life of Brian came out, they were picketing. They were, but the adults couldn't do it because they had to go to work. <laughs> so they were pulling the kids out of the school, church, the church school, during the day to picket. And I remember one time I ran into one of the adults and said, well, have you ever seen the movie? Because their comment was, well, this guy makes himself out to be Christ. And I said, have you ever seen the movie? No. My pre- pre- the preacher has. And he said, yes. No. Because Brian and you are going to go, no. I mean, Brian in the movie spends the entire movie saying he's not Christ. Right. Well, yeah, that's the mindset. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was, I, 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 I remember it was the Rock Church in Norfolk, Virginia. That there were a lot of people that formed their opinions based solely on the opinions of people that were in authority and they trusted. Well, of course, the and, same thing. And, and the media. So we have a gentleman back here. There was actually a case in the eighties um, where a lady talked under uh, hypnosis and disclosed a great deal of satanic cults, um, and that she had been impregnated dozens of times by her father. It all later turned out to be hopeless. Um, this is where the X-Files and all these other things were based off that particular case. In the early 80s, you had a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, and law enforcement officers doing traveling science shows, teaching classes to, group, right, to groups, church groups, and law enforcement right. groups, even the FBI Academy, yeah. about this, and D&D was one of their main topics. Yeah. Um, one of their main, this, they had books they could show, yeah. and you know, had People who got tremendous amounts of training on that, all the Right, right, right. Yeah, they're all focused, but it's still, yeah. there's still Jesus, a lot of work about. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Uh, there are police manuals. Yeah, they're talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 you parked out in front of the 
the store and the chick chick publishing tracks. Oh right, right. Yeah. By the way, I heard that somebody actually wrote to Jack Chick and told him that D D wasn't like that, and he responded and basically said, "Oh," and he stopped producing that pamphlet. No, it's not, not true. true. No, not true. I, but what's, I actually what's did. interesting is that there's there's some people currently, or maybe they just didn't finish it. They're making a movie based on that pamphlet. Yeah. And they're doing it exactly the way the pamphlet does. Yeah. Uh, but they're basically doing it as satire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, good. but they're being true to the pamphlet. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. Yo, brothers, this was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, We'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.